All right, I feel sorry for our interpreter tonight. Um, because tonight's lesson is a lot of history, a lot of facts and uh, things as we are moving through. We're doing a study and uh, you uh, that are visiting from Morris Park, you're getting in on lesson number nine. So it's kind of the middle of things. And uh, what we are, uh, the topic we are going through is the Bible. Its origin, its history, its translation, and its preservation. And uh, so now we're working on uh, the translation of the Bible. And uh, last, uh, not last Sunday night, but the week before actually, uh, we went through what translation actually is and, and how that is actually defined for us. In the words of God, uh, one of the shining examples was Enoch was, then he was not. And the Bible says that God translated him. God took him from this plane on earth and took him to eternity to be with God. Was it the same Enoch? Uh, Yeah. Was he different? Absolutely, because you cannot live in heaven in, in your earthly body. It's got sin. And, and God has to get rid of all that before He takes us to heaven to be with Him. And, and it is simply an illustration of what translation is. You take it from one language and you simply put it in another. And we went through some of the myths and, and things. I get so frustrated, you read a book and it'll tell you, well, there are just certain things that can't be translated from one language to another. How come nobody says that at the United Nations? When they are translating something into 150 some odd languages, all at the same time, they don't have a problem with that. But, quote unquote, learned scholars who study all of these languages, they can't take something from the Greek and put it into English. Uh, I, I got a problem with that. How about you? And, and uh, the uh, other thing that we used to illustrate that was uh, I brought out the Strong's Concordance. It has every Greek and Hebrew word, uh, a little over 8,000 unique words in the English language make up your King James Bible. Uh, I'm not sure exactly the uh, sum total of all of the listings, but I think there's roughly 9,000 Hebrew words and uh, 8,000 and some odd uh, Greek words that are listed in the Strong's Concordance. And many of those are just different parsings and different derivatives of the same word. And, And yet it only makes up about this much, about an inch maybe. And uh, then I brought out just one volume of my Oxford English Dictionary, of which there are 19 others. And uh, if you can't find a word in there, the problem is not with the English language. And it's not with the Greek and the Hebrew. It's with the person doing the translating. Uh, And so uh, now tonight is basically a history lesson. Uh, if you are interested, after the service, I will try to get, I have a facsimile copy of uh, a book that's known as the Hexophila. And what that is, is a seven 
English translations side by side in parallel columns. And uh, it has, uh, let's see here, uh, the Wycliffe of 1380, uh, William Tyndale's Kramer, I think the Geneva, Douay Reims, and the King James, uh, the six that are basically listed here in our outline. And you can actually read them in text. Now, I'll tell you, it's just somebody took the book and put it on a copy machine. And that's because I didn't have hundreds of dollars to invest in an original edition. It was published in uh, 1841, I think, and a uh, great big book and lots and lots of money, and it wouldn't have a place to keep it anyway. So uh, the facsimile edition cost about uh, three bucks. So uh, I'll gladly save the money and put it in the offering plate. Amen? And, and so uh, if you'd like to see that, I'll, I'll try to remember to get that out. But um, how many remember English literature from high school? The Venerable Bede. Does that name ring any bells? Uh, If you took English literature, you had to read uh, the little bits that we have. And the Venerable Bede uh, lived about 735. As far as we know, he got John's Gospel and some of the Psalms into the ancient Anglo-English language. Uh, If we could produce a copy of that, you would not be able to read even one word of it. It would not make any sense to you. This is before Beowulf. Uh, uh, This is the, uh, the oldest. The Psalms were done by King Alfred in about 950, they think. And again, this was the ancient uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, language. This was before the English language was a language. The first whole Bible translation was done by John Wycliffe. Now, Wycliffe actually translated from the Latin version, but it's amazing in Wycliffe's translation how much his Latin reflects the text of our King James Bible, not the Vulgate of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, that was because there was simply more than one Latin Bible. And uh, Mr. Wycliffe did a great job for 1380. But if you will look at the copy of the Hexophila, you'll find out that you'll only be able to pick out certain words. And if you're familiar with the verse... Oh, you say, oh, that's what that word is. Um, and, and so uh, uh, it was a good translation, but by the time we get down to 1600, there were actually very few people that could read it with any ease or any real understanding. Forty-one years after Mr. Wycliffe was, uh, had died and was buried by order of the Roman Catholic pontiff, his remains were dug up and burned and scattered to the four winds because the Pope hated what Mr. Wycliffe had done. He had taken God's Word and made it available to the common man. You see, this book was never made... God did not give us a Bible to keep it in museums. He gave us a Bible for us to read. 
it's not only to be understood by the learned clergy and by the great scholars uh, of our day. In fact, uh, one thing I have found is most of the people running around claiming scholarship, um, uh, if I can get political for just a minute, how many of you remember the former administration? We were always talk, told about this guy is the smartest man in the room. Do you remember that phrase? The news media used it all the time. Now, you look at the mess we're in right now. That's the smartest man in the room. Maybe we ought to get somebody a little dumber to figure things out, and they'll, they'll do them right. How about that? Uh, God meant His Word to be understood by the common man. In fact, if you can't find it in here, if you can't read it, maybe it's not in here. Do you ever think about that? Go through your Bible sometime and see if there's a Pope in the Bible anywhere. You know, Peter, he said, An elder unto who... Uh, unto the elders who am also an elder. He said, I'm a pastor, and I'm sending you a letter to other pastors. That doesn't sound like the Pope talking, now does it? No. Peter was a simple believer in Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter got baptized the same way these three got baptized tonight. Went and found the Baptist preacher and got dunked in the water. I think Brother Franz was having too much fun pushing you guys under. I don't know. But uh, baptism is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Somebody came up with the phrase years ago, what would Jesus do? Do you realize you cannot do anything that Jesus did? You can't open blind eyes. You can't make lame people walk. You can't teach like Jesus taught, but I'll tell you what you can do that Jesus did. He went and found a Baptist preacher and got baptized. That's what he did. It was John the Presbyterian. I mean, I'm sorry, forgive me. My sarcasm slips out every once in a while. You'll forgive me, I hope. If we can't have fun in church, where in the world are we going to enjoy ourselves? I'll tell you what, you're going to enjoy yourself in heaven, so you might as well get ready now. Amen? And so, what we are simply doing here is John Tyndale, I mean, sorry, John Wycliffe, put the Bible in the language of the common people, and for the first time in history, the average person was able to read God's Word for themselves. And they were able to hear. And people said, well, what did they do before 1380? Well, actually, you get much before 1380. And the language that was spoken was the leftover Latin from the Roman Empire all through the Middle Ages. Most of Europe was still using that and people understood. But as the languages developed, and we already talked about some of the ancient translations in the Syrian, the old Peshitta version, in the that would have been in the the um, the area of uh, uh, of Iraq and and Iran and up in toward Afghanistan. That language was spoken there. They had a Bible by 250 A.D. The the Gauls and the uh, 
which were the forerunners of the French, the Franks, which were another barbarian group they called. They had their own translations uh, all about that same time. The first Latin Bible that we know about, what was actually the Latin Vulgate or the common tongue, was done about 150 A.D. by the Waldensians. Uh, that was the name they became known under, uh, known as under the uh, in the Middle Ages, and uh, their Bible was the Bible that Wycliffe used, not Jerome's Vulgate. But I, I've read in history books that the only Bible that was available to Medieval Europe was Jerome's Vulgate. That's simply not true. That was the Bible that was chained up in the Catholic churches and in the monasteries. But the Waldensian Latin Bible was available throughout all of Europe all that time, right up until there. Then the next important man uh, was William Tyndale. Now, William Tyndale did something that no one before him had done. He translated into the English, modern English language, uh, the entire Bible using the original Hebrew and Greek. Now, what that did was that gave him a better translation. It was illegal to own in England... And it is the basis for which our King James comes from. They say, depending on who you talk to, 80 to 90% of our King James Bible is in total agreement with the Wycliffe Bible. Why? Because Wycliffe was such a smart man? No. Because they were using the same manuscripts. And they just did an honest translation. And when they did that honest translation... Strangely enough, they ended up at the same place. Now, you look at me like, Pastor, what? You see, the reason I'm telling you this is because we have people today making modern translations into the English language, and they don't end up at the same place. They change the words. They change entire meanings. They drop out in passages. They, they cut your Bible up. In fact, they claim that there's a... Uh, a man named Tischendorf uh, came out with about 25 editions of the New Testament in Greek with over 100,000 alterations. Now, how in the world could you come up with that many mistakes? Here's how it works. First, you've got to get a degree so you can tell people how smart you are. And then you do dumb things and you change words, and you ignore things, and you throw away things so that you can appear to be the smart person. And that makes you the God of the book instead of you surrendering your authority to what's already there. That is the central issue of the translations. And so... Mr. Tyndale gave his life. He was burned at the stake in Belgium in 1536. His prayer as the fires began to consume his body was that God would open the eyes of the King of England. Well, then we come up with Mr. Miles and Mr. Coverdale. 
And uh, it was published under several different names. It was called the Bishop's Bible, the Great Bible, the Coverdale Bible, um, and uh, also Matthew's Bible. Uh, but what they were doing was they were taking Tyndale's work and improving it a little bit. And they brought this and published this Bible. And then we have King Henry VIII dying and his son, Edward, coming on. Now, Edward, King of England, was, as far as we can tell, a Bible-believing Christian. And he did all that he could to have the Bible published in the English language. The only problem was he didn't live very long. And when he died, the shortest regent in the history of England, Lady Jane Grey, was put on the throne for seven days and then led to the tower and beheaded. And then Mary, Queen of Scots, ascended to the throne, one of the daughters of Henry. Uh, Her title, or sobriquet, was Bloody Mary because she tried to drag England back under the uh, bondage to the Roman church. The penalty for having a Bible in the English language was death. And they claimed to love God and worship God, but they take your Bible and burned it in the pile of wood that burned you. Does that sound like godliness to you? But that is real history. And literally hundreds of of preachers in the Church of England and many, many good, simple people reciting the Lord's Prayer in the English language was a capital offense under Bloody Mary. Could you imagine that? But that's what was going on in England. That was the battle. These... This was a war that was fought, and yet the people who held the Bible never took up a sword, never took up a weapon, never fought mortal combat, and yet who won the war? The Bible did. And so finally we have Elizabeth coming to the throne in 1588. She carefully regulated the Bibles and printed them in England. And just before she came to the throne, we had three other, two other translations. The Geneva Bible was translated in Switzerland by exiles from the English church living there with John Calvin. Uh, You've heard that name mentioned in a very negative way most of the time around here, and that's the way it should be. Uh, We don't want a commentary of a medieval lawyer. What we want is the Bible. And uh, John Calvin uh, helped, uh, not personally, but uh, uh, they used many of his notes. The Geneva Bible was an honest translation into the English language. There were two or three men that actually worked on that. And it is highly revered in Protestant circles today. But I want to challenge you historically, the only importance that the Geneva Bible had had nothing to do with its translation. It was the notes. Because they took John Calvin's notes and put it in the sideline there 
and they preached against the papacy, and they preached against the divine right of kings, and uh, preached that the church should rule, not the king should rule. In John Calvin's Switzerland, they regulated the number of plates you could have on the table at dinner time. It was a punishable offense to have too many plates on the table at dinner time. That is not godliness. That is tyranny. And religion, when it's allowed to run amok without this, without the authority of these words, always ends up in tyranny. You see, tonight is kind of hard because we're not having a simple text and going through a text. That's what I love to do as a preacher. And that's what Brother Franz is trained to do. But we've got to get the history because the history is real. But you see, when, when you take that authority that belongs here and give it to a man or a group of men or a church organization, you're always going to have trouble. How does it work in the real church? Well, the preacher opens this book and he teaches what's in it. And you have the responsibility to take your copy home and read it and study it and make sure. Now, we put Brother Franz through, the, through a lot of tests and a lot of training here, right here at this church. You know what? You could probably figure out a question Brother Franz couldn't answer. You, you might could figure out one that I couldn't answer. But... You know what? Some of those questions don't need answering because they're just excuses to keep us from doing the simple things this book already says. Like getting baptized tonight. That's a simple thing, isn't it, guys? That's not complicated. All you're doing is following the Word of God. And so this Geneva translation was causing a lot of problems in England and not to be undone. The Catholic Church, in its attempt to re uh, to turn back the uh, rep, uh, the uh, oh, name is Reformation. There we go. They translated their own Bible, and after years of killing people for having a copy of the Bible, they said, "Well, we can't stop it, so we'll make our own copy." And you can even get the Douay Reims. Uh, updated for modern language. It was translated uh, in 1562, I think finally published in 1582 or something like that. And it has several changes in there that are very positive toward Catholic doctrine. They're pretty easy to trace. When Peter saw Jesus as after he had denied him, the Douay Reim says, Repent and do penance. Now, it's the only version that has that in there. wonder where that came from. You see, that's what we call an interpolation is the big fancy word. That means we just change the text to fit our doctrine. 
We add words to make it agreeable. The Jehovah's Witnesses did that when they came out with their New World Translation. It's very easy to, to see those things. And so that brings us up to the year 1603 when James I ascends the throne. Now, James I had one major thing. He hated the Puritans. Now, you know who the Puritans were? They were the Calvinists. Because they didn't like what was going on in the Church of England. You know what? You didn't have to be saved to be a member of the Church of England. All you had to do was show up. In fact, you were enrolled as a member of the Church of England as a little baby when you were born. They'd sprinkle water on your head. Or sometimes, even at this time, up until 1588, they were still arguing about whether a baby ought to be immersed in water or uh, sprinkled. They finally settled that for sprinkling in 1588 in, in England. And James hated the Puritans. But he was tired of all of the arguments. He was tired of people carrying the Bishop's Bible and Tyndale's Bible. And Tyndale's Bible now was um, 1534, nearly 100 years old. And there was a lot of changes in the English language. And so as you, if you look at the hexophila that I have, you'll see Tyndale's Bible is very, very difficult to read. And uh, so he said, let's stop the arguing and let's do this. And people say, why was it called King James? Did he translate it? No, not one word. Did he pay for it? No, not one dollar, not one pound, not one sovereign. All he did was he was the king... And he authorized the translation of the Bible. And we have a little history here on the back page there. And I'll try to move as quickly as I can here without boring you with too many details. But you had 54 men, arguably the most educated men in the history of the English language. You know what we didn't have in 1611? Slip and fall lawyers. Now, what is the importance there? You get one of those sleazy lawyers that will do anything to get money, and they'll make a contract say things that it never did. How many are familiar with how that works? Uh, they'll, they'll lie about the words. They'll change the word. Well, it says this. It says you were going to pay him. Uh, $1,200, but it really doesn't mean you're going to pay him $1,200. My client only wants to pay 800 And they'll take you to court and they'll sue you and it's cheaper to settle and pay him the $800 and take it than it is to fight it out in court and try to get the extra 400 That's what lawyers have done to our language. Uh, and may I add, uh, we're talking about not the good lawyers, but we're talking about the polit- politician kind of lawyers. Why should it take 3,800 pages to define one law? Why do we need two and a half million laws on the federal statute books of the United States of America? As one preacher aptly said many years ago, each one of them trying to help you keep the Ten Commandments. You see... Words mean something. And they still mean something. 
And these 54 men were divided into six groups. Each group was assigned part of the Bible. Yet each of those six groups was to check the other five groups' work. So each committee, subcommittee of six men, checked the entire Bible. Each of the six-member group was to translate the entire passage, and then they were to come together and assemble. Uh, the technical term is to collate their individual work to make one translation that would be the best effort that they could produce. Then each of the other groups were to review this, and finally it went for a final review. The copy was taken to be printed, and this of the notes, we have the notes of one of the 54 translators, John Boyce. We have some of his notes. But of this final copy that went to the printers, there's no history of it existing after 1655. And no one's been able to find uh, the notes. We do not know if many of them chose to just destroy them. Uh, we don't know. He said, well, if we had the notes of the translators, no. If we had the notes of the translators, then there would be 10,000 more pages of things to argue about. Let me just give you one illustration. I should have brought the book so I could read the quote more succinctly, but uh, one of the translators, his name was John Kilby, was attending a church service. This was about 1623, something in that, about 10 years after the Bible was translated, 1621. And the preacher that was there chose to make his entire sermon a criticism of a mistranslation in the King James Bible, the 1611 Bible. Unbeknownst to the man preaching, the translator who had translated that very passage was a member of his audience. And so after the service, Dr. Kilby was there by the invitation of his friend, and he talked his friend into inviting the pastor over. And after a little discussion, he said, uh, what a wonderful waste of words. He said, I actually sat on the translating committee and you gave your people three reasons why that should not be translated as it was. He said, I want you to know that our committee examined all three of your reasons why it shouldn't be translated as it was. But we had 13 other reasons why it should have been translated as it was. Could I challenge you? That depth of scholarship is really no longer a part of our English language. That's just one illustration. You see, people have all kinds of problems. They say, oh, we don't have all the manuscripts. We have new manuscripts that have been discovered since 1611. Yeah, we do. But every family of manuscripts was available to the translators. They just simply, and we'll get into this when we do modern translations, they used a different rules of evidence than the modern translators used. 
Let me ask you, if you had 95 statements that said A plus B equals C, and then you had five other statements that said something totally different, A plus B equals D and D plus C equals, and they didn't agree with each other, what would you do with those five that disagreed? We'd throw them away and we'd take the 95, wouldn't we? Well, we have that kind of preponderance of evidence for your King James Bible, and yet every one of the 152 other translations in the English language get all of their changes from the 5% that don't even agree with itself. And I'll explain how that works in weeks to come. But the point that we're making here is simply this. When people talk about errors in the King James Bible, you know what they're often doing? They're comparing this Bible to manuscripts it did not come from. Now, would that produce errors? Well, absolutely, because it wasn't part of the basis of this translation. It was rejected by the translators as being erroneous and not helpful not useful, not trustworthy. And so modern scholars go through and they criticize the King James on basis of manuscripts that had nothing to do with the translation. You know what my mama called that? She called that lion. And you know what? I agree with my mother. Liar, liar, pants on fire, right? How many of you remember that? I mean, it's just simply time that we have a little integrity, a little honesty here. Um, There were people talk about all the changes. In fact, Andrew, why don't you uh, grab the page of Philippians off the wall in my office and... uh, Uh, I have a 1611 page actually printed in the year 1611 from the Bible. And uh, it's over 400 years old. And uh, I think it's worth probably about somewhere between $800 and $1,200, depending on who wanted to buy it. But uh, I'm not selling it. And uh, it would be somewhat difficult to read. But uh, I'll leave this up here for you to look at. This is Philippians chapter 3. This was print, this is an original page from a King James Bible. And so the, uh, uh, you, you would have problems reading some of the letters. Some of the words are spelled different. But to make a long story short, there's a preacher in New Jersey. His name was D.A. Waite. He took a facsimile copy. Someone had photographed every page from a King James Bible, 1611. It looked just like this. And then he put Alexander Scorby reading the Bible in his ear. How many of you have listened to Alexander Scorby read the Bible? He has such a wonderful voice, does he not? And uh, here was his results. Reading through the entire Bible, uh, 
here's what people say. They say that there are 75,000 printing errors. Mr. Waite found that there were 421 changes to the ear in the text. That means that when Alexander Scorby was reading from a modern King James and he was reading from the pages of the facsimile edition of the King James Bible, he found in the whole Bible 421 words that sounded different than what he was reading. That doesn't sound like 75,000 errors to me. How about you? Of that, 421 changes, 285 are form changes. That's where it's TH or ST ending the word or ED, those different endings there. Only 136 words between a copy of the original 1611 Bible and the modern Bible that you carry in your hand. And not one of these words affected one doctrine in your Bible. Of the 791,328 words in your King James Bible, that gives us a change percentage of 172 millionths. I think I'm reading that right. One, one hundred and seventy-two, you got point zero 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 one seven two percent change. Pure gold isn't that pure. You can't buy a mineral as pure as your Bible is. See, why do I tell you this? Because your trust has got to be somewhere. Our first lesson was, what was the devil's temptation to Eve in the garden? Yea, hath God said. What is the scholar's temptation today? Yea, hath God said? No. That word wasn't in the original. You know what? Nobody's ever seen an original. Because when they got wore out, they were copied and done away with. You see, the only changes made in this book were spelling changes and, and text uh, print type changes and things like that. You'll notice in, your, in this page, if you find anything in italics, it'll be in modern Roman text. Whereas the rest of it is in a Gothic text that is very hard to read. And on about the 1700s, they changed all of those things. But we can trust our Bible. Now, what does it mean that we can trust our Bible? It means you'd better get serious about obeying what's written on the pages. Amen? It means that don't go to a church where your preacher's not serious about what's written on the pages. I remember reading a thing years ago, and it said, uh, somebody told the preacher, said, they won't listen to doctrine, preacher. You, you, must, you must tell them stories, and you must entertain them. And this was in the 1700s. You know what the preacher told them? He said, they must listen to doctrine. 
Why am I giving you a history lesson tonight? Because you must listen to doctrine. It's all we have. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. You see, without doctrine, we can't go any further. What's the next one? Reproof. How many of you like being wrong? I don't. I don't like somebody tell me I'm wrong. Do you? But I'll tell you this. As a sophomore in Bible college, I found out I was baptized wrong. I got baptized when I was eight and saved when I was eleven. Praise God, I had a straight shooting preacher because the church I grew up in really didn't care about those things at that point. And the preacher said, that's not right. You've got to get that straightened out. You've got to get biblically baptized. You get saved first and then baptized. I couldn't argue with that. So as a sophomore in Bible college, it was rather embarrassing. I'm studying to be a preacher. You know what? I want to be obedient to the Word. Amen. Because that's where the authority is. Reproof. I don't know about you. There's only one thing worse than being wrong. And that's somebody pointing it out that doesn't know how to fix it. How many of you have ever been there? That looks broke, doesn't it? Give me a break. Tell me something I don't know. Do you know how to fix it? Oh, no, that's too complicated. Then leave me alone. Am I the only one that's like that? Am I demonstrating a carnal attitude? I hope not. You see, the Bible is for correction. How to make it right. Amen? And then instruction in righteousness. How to keep from doing the same dumb thing over again. Isn't that wonderful? You're only going to get that help from your Bible. And if you let some scholar attack the words, you won't have any doctrine. And then you won't know the difference between right and wrong. And that's the world in which we live today, is it not? God hasn't changed. His word hasn't changed. And by God's grace, this church isn't going to change. And Morris Park is going to keep doing exactly what the Bible says. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight.